Let's take a moment of prayer before the message this morning. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are both convicted and uplifted by your word. More than anything, gracious God, we ask that we are drawn ever closer to Christ Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So con today we are continuing our series, Joy in Times of Trouble, from Paul's letter to the Philippians. We've been exploring that even though circumstances can be really hard, sometimes even harder than hard, that there still is the possibility of joy. And we've been exploring how Paul has put his identity. His identity is in Christ Jesus. It is in what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. And that's where Paul puts his identity. And then the purpose, Paul's purpose really, what brings him joy is really having the gospel, having Christ proclaimed. So the past couple of weeks, it has been about gratitude and thankfulness and rejoicing, rejoicing in Christ Jesus and his gospel. And now the letter changes focus a little bit because now that he's laid the groundwork, he says for the readers, for the hearers of the letter, this is now how you are to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm curious what you might say to that. How are we to live as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? Because we do live together. We work together. We worship together. How are we to do all of that? And so today we're going to explore what it means about living as brothers and sisters in Christ. And our roadmap this morning is living for the gospel, living in unity, and living by the humbleness of Christ. These are the markers. These are the ways we are going to explore about how you and I are to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the first one this morning is living for the gospel. And let's go to the text. The text is from Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I want to let you know, I actually did a message on these verses in the very beginning of February and actually did a fairly in-depth uh, message on these verses. So I would encourage you to go back and uh, listen to that particular message. However, unless you memorized all the points in the message and all of these verses, you might need a refresher. And for those who have never really studied this, it'll be new. So... Let's dive into these verses. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A more literal reading of this would be, Only continue to exercise your citizenship 
in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that word citizenship, the reference is even uh, made more clear later in Paul's letter, chapter 3, verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this emphasis on citizenship, this was important because the city of Philippi was a colony of Rome. As a matter of fact, uh, it was often called or could be called a little Rome. So uh, being a citizen of Rome was very important. And as a citizen of Rome, you had both rights and obligations. You had privileges and obligations. And now the privileges could be about property and buying things and the freedom of passage in many places. But there was one particular obligation, which is that you had to worship Caesar as God. And that was an obligation. But Paul is saying that you and I, you and I are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. I mean, I think there's direct correlation today because there are so many things going on in our nation right now that people want you to really praise, to bow down, as it were, in many different things, whether it's uh, political, whether it's social. It could be all sorts of different things. And they want that to be the focus of your life. But says, no, 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 Paul says, you are a citizen of heaven. That is your rightful place. And as citizens, we are to exercise our citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that means our actions and our behaviors are in harmony with the blessings and responsibilities of the gospel. You see, because of the gospel, you and I are to walk, to conduct ourselves in a certain manner. Now, this obligation is not another law. It's not another commandment of do this, the law. Rather, as I talked about last week, it is about the gospel. It is gospel-driven. Because Christ Jesus died for you. And because of faith in him, your sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit has taken your passport, has taken your soul and stamped it with the seal of Christ Jesus. That your passport now says you are a citizen of heaven, a child of God, a disciple of Christ Jesus. And that is the kingdom to which you belong and to which you are to live and to conduct yourself accordingly. And then if you conduct yourself accordingly and you are rooted in the gospel, in the gospel of Christ, you can stand firm. And this is what Paul says. He writes, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Look, we've covered this in a number of different ways throughout the time I've been here. But we are to be rooted in the gospel. We are to trust him, love him, hope in him, cling to Christ Jesus. We cling to him and the gospel message that we are given and the teaching that we have from scripture. We cling to that and thus we stand firm and we are striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. And when we do that, we can do that without fear. Pastor Dustin Benji, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, B-E-N-G-E. He said this, believers armed with scripture, bathed in prayer, and their eyes upon the cross of Christ are more powerful than all the legislations, Supreme Courts, social movements, and clever ideologies in all the world. We have nothing to fear. At the same time, when you stand firm for the gospel, you know, you need to know that you will be attacked. It says this, and do not be frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Look, when you take a stand for the gospel, you must expect that you're going to be met with resistance. And the promise in this is that you will suffer. There's going to be resistance and suffering. Look, in Paul's day, Christians were called many derogatory names. Paul himself was cursed, beaten, stoned. In China, you heard me pray about China. I don't know if you've been reading the newspaper about China, but there are horrific things going on throughout that nation, but also being a Christian in that nation easily ostracizes you at the least and puts you in jail at the worst. And though we have freedom right now in this country, more and more, when you take a look around more and more to confess Christ as Lord and Savior and the only way of salvation, expect to meet with resistance. But again, we have nothing to fear about that, do we? At the same time, we are not to retaliate in kind. We are not to be overcome by hate by any means. We are to be grounded in the love of Christ Jesus. And it takes a lot greater strength and thus greater faith to continue in the love of Christ rather than the hate of the world. And when we continue in the love of Christ, continually standing fast, firm in the gospel, people will know who our God is and who Christ is and that we are saved and that they are not. This is what Paul is talking about here. 
There's much more, but this is a thumbnail sketch of what it means to live for the gospel. Now we'll talk about living in unity. Now we start with chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now, Paul has already laid the groundwork, right? He's laid the groundwork for living for the gospel. And now he's talking about living in unity. And in these two verses, there's a lot in there. Uh, Paul is a, is a brilliant writer, and he's very compact, and sometimes it's dense, and it's hard for us to take a look at it. So what I've done this morning is to make it into just kind of a, a, a three-part table that might be helpful for you. And the header of the first one is, since there is, therefore have unity by practicing humility. Kind of simplifying it a little bit for us to take a look at. Since there is. So when he writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ... Look, he's not saying that he doubts that there is any encouragement in Christ. It's more like the statement, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort in love, since there is fellowship in the spirit, since there is affection and sympathy for one another, have unity. Here, this might help. It's a a paraphrase, a little longer paraphrase, but might get to a better sense uh, of what's being written here. Since you have been saved by the grace of Christ and received from him the great love that you have from him and for each other, and because you are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, having received such great mercy, live together in unity. Kind of simplifies it, hopefully, a little bit for you. See, again, Paul is focusing on the gospel-driven life because of the gospel of Christ, because of what he has done, live in unity with one another. And now he says this, that we are to live in unity by having the same mind. Now that word mind is mentioned numerous times in Paul's letter. It's repeated twice here in, in the verse, in verse 2, and It's also repeated beforehand and afterwards. So the mind, right? Being of the same mind. That's a really tall order though, isn't it? I mean, Heidi and I have been married a few years now. And uh, we've been married long enough, it becomes a math problem, right? You got to figure out when we do all that sort of stuff. Um, But as long as we've been married, I still can't read her mind. Oh, I might have some good guesses every now and then, (laughs) every now and then. But uh, I still can't read her mind. And then now you think of churches, churches having the same mind, always being in unity of the same mind. Oh, my goodness. Look, I read about a church uh, in Dallas. There was such a severe disagreement in that church that they went to civil court to resolve that problem. But the civil court said, this isn't an issue for us. You got to take it to your denomination and Work it out there. So they had a church court. 
And during the church court, they found out, they finally were able to trace the very root of the problem. And it was this. During a church dinner, an elder of the church was served a smaller slice of ham than the child sitting next to him. Can you believe that? I mean, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Unity of mind. This is important, and I want to mention first, though, that when Paul is writing about unity of mind, he's not talking about how persuasive you can be to get somebody to agree with you about a particular point of view. And unity of mind is not about taking a poll or getting consensus by the conversations of a poll or any, any such thing like that. That's not what he is talking about. Go back, read the verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, write the gospel and the love of the gospel. Be of the same mind of the gospel. Having the same love, being a court of one mind of the gospel. I don't know how many more times I can say that, but that's the focus that he's doing. And, and then we would say, well, okay, but how do I practice that? How do I put that in practice in my life? And so he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So what could we call that otherwise? Well, we could call that pride, right? Pride is the greatest barrier when it comes to living in unity. Pride says, I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm not only right, I'm really right, and you're really wrong. And that plays out through churches. You can see this playing out through our nation right now. See, Paul writes about unity, and the unity he writes about comes from humility. Right? A humble heart. And a humble heart is the opposite of a prideful heart. Now, having a humble heart doesn't mean you just let people walk all over you. It doesn't mean that you can't have opinions or you can't voice a different point of view. But it means that you are striving together side by side in harmony. Harmony. You know, you, you, you have harmony rather than discord. And here's the interesting thing about harmony. If you play music at all, did you know that harmony can only happen when there are two different notes? It's not the same note, but it's two different notes that complement each other. And you and I are to complement each other in the gospel, striving side by side. We don't always have to play the same note, but we harmonize with each other. A conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked, what was the most difficult instrument to play? You know what he said? Second violin. 
I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. One other commentator said this, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Look, the unity that we are to have in Christ Jesus, oh, it's been a good reminder to me. It sets the bar in a much different plane to strive side by side, to put away our pride, our selfish ambitions, our pettiness. And that's why Paul again and again points us to the cross. You see, we're to live for the gospel, living in unity, and now living by the humbleness of Christ. Starting with verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. You know, there's the song, How Great Thou Art. There's one line in there, a verse in there. It says, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. I remember one time just pondering those words, and my heart was just overcome, trying to grasp the immensity of what God the Father did by sending his son and what the son did all for us. I scarce can take it in. Now, these verses that we have here, verse 5 through 7, we could spend weeks and weeks upon these verses alone, and we could scarcely take it in. Because Paul's pointing, he says, here, you want unity? Have the mind of Christ. Now, the mind of Christ is so immense that we really can't take it in, but Paul is focusing on one particular aspect for us, and it is the humility, the humbleness of Christ Jesus. And I want us to focus really on verse 6 and 7 here. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, there's two key parts here to focus on. One, Jesus being in the form of God, and two, that he emptied himself. Okay, so what does it mean to say that Jesus was in the form of God? Now, there are some people who would say, well, that Jesus was then less than God. He was God-like, but he wasn't actually God. And we would say that is in total error. That is actually heresy. Jesus is not God-like. Jesus is God. What does it say in the beginning of John's gospel? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In a literal translation of it, it would say, and God was the Word. Now, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He, this referring to Jesus, 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of God. He's not a reflection of God, like less than God. No, he is the radiance of God. That is his very essence is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Not a carbon copy, but exact. And did you know that we actually confess these truths in the Nicene Creed? And I'm so glad that's why we had it this morning. In the Nicene Creed, we confess that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made of being one substance with the Father. And because Jesus is God, there's no striving to be more than, because there is no more than God. There's no fear that he's somehow not going to be God. It means that he does not use his power and majesty for selfish ambition. And by the way, this ties back to what Paul was writing about. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others significant for yourselves. So it's very important when we say, Jesus was in the form of God that we know what that means. And now in verse 7, verse 7 says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now you and I can pretty much understand clearly what it means to be in the form of a servant, in the likeness of man, of men, that he became man, right? But what does it mean that he emptied himself? Again, there are some people who say, well, he was God, but then he wasn't God, and then he became God again. Again, we would say that is heresy, that is false teaching. Jesus was never not God. We believe that he is fully God and fully man at the same time. So what does it mean then, though, if he emptied himself. Well, what this means is that for a moment, he put aside using his power and his might and majesty. It means this. It means that Jesus left his heavenly throne, and all of his manifest glory. Think of heaven, right? And Jesus being in heaven, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the power and the majesty and might and the glory that he had. And he left all of that to come to us. He left all of that to pitch his tent in a world which was covered in darkness. He dwelt among us. That's in part what it means that he emptied himself. It also means that he gave up his riches and took upon himself our debt. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this beautifully. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There was nothing that Jesus lacked in heaven. Now he came to a place where he had no home. He was an itinerant preacher. He had no bed, really, to lay on. He had no money, pretty much just the clothes that he wore. He gave up all of that so that you, through him and in him, might have salvation and thus rich in your salvation. He also gave up his will for obedience to the Father's will. What did he pray in the garden? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He laid aside all of these things, all of these things and more, and he became a servant. Now, Isaiah 53 is actually a perfect section here for us to talk about how much he humbled himself. As a matter of fact, it's called the suffering servant. And we often read this on Good Friday. Let me read it here. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Paul succinctly writes, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the humbleness of Christ Jesus, that he laid down his life for us. Now, if it stopped there, it would be a funeral dirge, wouldn't it? And we would just be left in sorrow, but we're not left in sorrow, are we? Because we know that there is more to this. We know that our Savior lives, that he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Again, that's what we confess in the Nicene Creed. And so we live not in the sorrow, but the promise of the glory of Christ Jesus. For it says in this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. And I know it doesn't say amen there, but I, <laughs> I'm just called to say amen to that. Look, we are not humble just to be humble, we are humble because Christ was humble. 
We are a servant because Christ was a servant. And we don't live in that humility or humbleness as something oppressive. We live in it because of the joy of Christ Jesus. And when you can remember about the humbleness and the joy of Christ Jesus at the same time, no matter the circumstances, you can rejoice. So this morning, for you today, how are or aren't you living like a citizen of heaven? How are or aren't you living in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And how will the humbleness of Christ shape how you live? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great gift you have given us. And we know that it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit we come and have your mind. So we pray that you continue to work on us. All to your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.